Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 45, Greeks Being Clever, Part 2. It's time to take another little break from our story and look at some more of those clever Greeks whose discoveries and thoughts we still use today. In Chapter 41, we learned a little bit about early Greek philosophy and the great Greek philosophers Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. The Greeks didn't just make great strides forward in thinking, they also made huge contributions to two subjects that continue to exercise the minds of very clever people today. These subjects are mathematics and its close cousin, astronomy. There are some links to diagrams which help explain some of the items in today's chapter. Just go to the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com and click on the Chapter 45 tab. Philosophy is closely linked with maths and astronomy, and some philosophers were also mathematicians. Mathematicians, though, go beyond thinking and try to explain. They are keen to observe and come up with theorems and then prove that their theorems are correct. However, as philosophy and maths were so closely linked in the ancient Greek world, it is not surprising that their stories begin with the same man. Before we look at him, though, we have to understand Greek numbers. The Greek numbering system was quite like the Roman one we all know. There were symbols for 1, 5, 10, 50, 100, 500 and 1000. This numbering system, like the Roman one, didn't make calculations very easy and most Greek mathematicians spent their time working on geometry, which is the study of the shape, size and position of objects. So, back to the earliest known Greek mathematician. He is our old friend Thales of Miletus. He is thought to be the first Greek mathematician to come up with a theory on geometry and then prove he was right. His theorem concerned two of the most important shapes in geometry, the triangle and the circle, and this is what he proved. If a line is drawn across the centre of a circle, we call it a diameter. Two straight lines are drawn from the places where the diameter meets the edge or circumference of the circle. If the other ends of these two lines meet at the circumference, no matter where on the circumference they meet, the angle between them will be a 90 degree angle, called a right angle. Try it, it always works. There is an example on the website. Thales used his knowledge of geometry to do practical things. He realised that if a triangle had one right angle and two angles of 45 degrees, then its two shorter sides would be the same length. He wanted to measure the height of the Great Pyramid. How do you think he did it, using his knowledge of these special triangles? Well, this is what he did. Clever old Thales knew how tall he was. He waited until the exact time of day when the length of his shadow was the same as his height. The angle between him standing up and the shadow on the ground was a right angle, so he had one of his special triangles. Then he measured the length of the shadow of the Great Pyramid. He knew, because of his special triangle, that the height of the pyramid must be the same as the length of its shadow at that time. He had measured the height of the Great Pyramid without having to climb it. The next man who liked playing with right-angled triangles is probably the most famous of all ancient Greek mathematicians, which is a bit strange because nobody is quite sure whether he was responsible for all of his theorems or whether some of them were actually solved by his followers. We won't be too concerned about this here, though. We will assume that he really did do the work. Introducing Pythagoras of Samos. Pythagoras was born in Samos, an island off Asia Minor, 
but he emigrated to Italy when he was very young. He also travelled to a lot of places, including Egypt, Phoenicia and Babylon. He was a philosopher as well as a mathematician. He and his followers thought that numbers were the root of all things, but their religious views were a bit odd. They taught that a man should never marry a woman who wore gold, he should never tuck, touch black fava beans, and he should never have a wee towards the sun. Despite these strange beliefs, they were quite enlightened in other areas. They believed, unlike most civilizations through the ages, that men and women were equal. He started a school with his wife, Theano, which she and her daughters continued to run after Pythagoras died. Pythagoras made contributions to astronomy. He was one of the first to say the Earth was a sphere, something that was later proved by Aristotle. He also didn't think the Earth was the centre of everything, although he didn't realise that it and the other planets orbited the Sun. He thought the planets, Earth and Sun, all orbited a central fire. He also made one very important contribution to our knowledge of the planets. The Greeks knew about the planets, and they knew they were different from the stars. The word planet comes from a Greek word meaning wanderer, as the Greeks thought the planet wandered about the sky. They knew only of six planets, including the two brightest ones, one of which was only visible in the evening, and one which was only visible in the early morning. These two planets they called Vesper and Lucifer. Pythagoras realised these two planets were in fact the same planet. We now call this planet Venus. Pythagoras isn't world famous for his work on astronomy though. He is known by everyone as the person who proved the famous theorem about right-angled triangles. It's a very simple theorem. A right-angled triangle has one angle which is a right angle and two other angles which are smaller. The longest side of a right-angled triangle is called the hypotenuse. Pythagoras proved there was a special relationship between the length of the hypotenuse and the length of the other two sides. First, take the length of one of the shorter sides and square it, that is, multiply it by itself. Then do the same with the other shorter side. Then add these numbers together. Finally, measure the length of the hypotenuse, and then square it. You will find, every time, that the square of the length of the hypotenuse is exactly equal to the squares of the other two sides added together. If these three lengths are whole numbers, then they are called a Pythagorean triple. Let's take the most famous example. If one of the shorter sides is three units long, and the other is four units long, then how long is the hypotenuse? Well, let's do the sum. Three squared is three times three, which is nine. Four squared is four times four, which is sixteen. Add these two numbers together, and you get twenty-five. So how long is the hypotenuse? Well, 25 is 5 times 5, so the hypotenuse is 5 units long. The proof is very clever and very simple. Simply draw squares with the sides the same length as the sides of the triangles. Then measure the areas of the squares. The areas of the squares whose sides are the same length as the two shorter sides, when added together, are the same size as the area of the square whose sides are the same length as the hypotenuse. Try it. There is an example on the website. Pythagoras and his followers discovered a few other geometrical things. They realised the internal angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees, and they discovered the equivalent facts about squares, pentagons, and shapes with any other numbers of sides. 
Even though Greek numbers were not great for calculations, Pythagoras and his followers worked on many theories about numbers. They knew all about square numbers, as we know, and they also worked on triangular numbers. They knew about perfect numbers. A perfect number is one which is the sum of all of its divisors except itself. A divisor is a number which divides another number exactly. Six is the first perfect number, as it is the sum of one, two and three, all of the numbers except itself which divide it exactly. The next perfect number is 28. Its divisors are 1, 2, 4, 7 and 14. The sum of 1, 2, 4, 7 and 14 is 28. The ancient Greeks knew only the first four perfect numbers, which is not entirely surprising as the fifth one is larger than 30 million. Pythagoras also discovered some other wonderful numbers known as amicable numbers. These lovely numbers are a bit like perfect numbers, except they travel in pairs. Each one of the pair is the sum of the divisors of the other one. The Pythagoreans only knew about one pair of amicable numbers, 220 and 284. I'll leave you to work out the divisors and prove these two numbers are indeed amicable. Pythagoras and his colleagues also knew about three very important solid figures called regular polyhedra. These were the tetrahedron, the cube and the dodecahedron. Pythagoras recognised these solids as being very important and very beautiful. The tetrahedron has four faces which are equilateral triangles. The cube has six faces which are perfect squares and the dodecahedron has twelve faces which are regular pentagons. No perfect regular polyhedra can be made with shapes which have faces of more sides, so these polygons are very special. Poor old Pythagoras met a bit of a sticky end. The Pythagorean Brotherhood was seen as a bit odd, and in about 500 BC there was an uprising against them. He was either killed in the fighting or escaped and later died of starvation. His followers continued the Brotherhood though, and were a big influence on later philosophers and mathematicians. Which brings us to another of our old friends. Pythagoras knew of the three regular polyhedra. What he didn't know is that there were actually two more of them. Although there were no other shapes which could form the faces of regular polyhedra, there were two more that could be made with equilateral triangles. Plato knew both of these solids. One has eight faces and is called an octahedron. The other has twenty and is called an icosahedron. The five regular polyhedra are now known as the Platonic Solids, after Plato. Plato encouraged the study of mathematics at his academy and believed that it was just as important as philosophy and he became known as the maker of mathematics. The sign above the academy entrance read Let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. By 300 BC, the great seat of learning in the Greek world had shifted to Alexandria. Ptolemy I encouraged learning and helped to build up a great library which also became a centre of learning. The library was built up over years and eventually contained hundreds of thousands of scrolls. These scrolls held great knowledge and great works of literature, including Homer's works and those by other Greek writers. One of the earliest and perhaps greatest of the scholars working in the city was Euclid of Alexandria. He is perhaps the greatest of the Greek mathematicians and is known as the father of geometry. He wrote a book called The Elements, which was filled from cover to cover with theorems about geometry. Every theorem ever developed by any Greek mathematician found its way into the elements. 
there were a total of 465 of them. We will not try to mention all of them here. Even more importantly, Euclid developed a method for doing maths, making sure that every step followed on logically from a previous one. Euclid went about proving as many things as he could. He worked out formulae for the volumes of loads of solids. He came up with another proof of Pythagoras' theorem. He proved there were an infinite number of Pythagorean triples. He proved there were and could only be five platonic solids. It was probably a good thing for the criminals of Alexandria that Euclid wasn't a detective. He seemed to be very good at proving things. Euclid, although he was the father of geometry, was not only interested in geometry. He was also interested in numbers, and more specifically, prime numbers. A prime number is a number which cannot be divided evenly by any number other than itself and one. Euclid proved that every number is either a prime number or can be made by multiplying two or more prime numbers together. Then he proved that there were an infinite number of prime numbers. The proof was amazingly clever, but also amazingly simple. Euclid said that you just have to take every prime number already known and multiply them together, and then add 1. This number must also be prime. Therefore, there is always one more prime number, and so there must be an infinite number of them. Try it with 2 and 3, then with 2, 3 and 5, then try it with a few more. Another man interested in prime numbers was Eratosthenes. He wanted a method of finding prime numbers, so he developed what has become known as the sieve of Eratosthenes. This is a great name, as the method is just like taking a bucket full of numbers and putting them through a sieve until only the prime numbers are left. It works like this. Let's say you want to find all of the prime numbers under 200. Write them all down in a grid. 2 is the first prime number, but any number which is divisible by 2 is not prime. So, starting with 4, cross out every second number. You won't have crossed out 3, so 3 must be prime, but any number divisible by 3 is not. So, starting with 6, cross out every third number. Now look at 4. It's already been crossed out, and so it's not prime, and you can move on. 5 hasn't been crossed out, so it must be prime, and every number divisible by 5 is not prime. So, starting with 10, cross out every fifth number. Carry on with this until you reach your target. All of the numbers that have not been crossed out are prime. There is an example of the sieve of Eratosthenes on the website. Eratosthenes, like the other Greek scholars of the time, knew the Earth was a sphere and not flat. He managed, by using the positions and shadows cast by the Sun, to calculate the circumference of the Earth. That is the distance you would travel if you travelled all the way round the world until you arrived back where you started. His measurement was remarkably accurate. He measured it to be 39,690 kilometres. The correct measurement is 40,008 kilometres. How amazing is that? Living at the same time as Eratosthenes was another man who some see as the greatest Greek mathematician. Archimedes lived on the island of Sicily and worked in the city of Syracuse. He is known as an inventor as well as a mathematician. He invented a kind of pump known as Archimedes' screw. He invented siege engines. He described how to use levers to lift heavy objects. His maths, though, was revolutionary. 
Archimedes knew there wasn't a simple method of measuring the area or circumference of a circle. It had been known for many years that there was a special number needed to work out what the circumference was. If the diameter was measured and multiplied by this special number, then the circumference could be found. Today we know this number as pi, and we know that it is what we call an irrational number. This means that it is impossible to work out its value exactly. We can get very, very, very close, but we can never know the exact value of pi. It had been known for over a thousand years that pi was a bit more than three. Nobody, though, had come up with a method of calculating it as accurately as possible. And this is what Archimedes did. And this is how he did it. He drew a perfect circle. Then he drew a regular hexagon inside the circle. Each of the six corners of the hexagon touched the circle. Then he drew another regular hexagon outside the circle. The centre of each of the six sides touched the circle. The circle was enclosed in the space between the two hexagons. It was easy to calculate the areas of the hexagons, and Archimedes knew the area of the circle must be somewhere in between the two. He realised he could get closer by making the number of sides of the regular polygon he was using larger. So he tried it with a dodecagon, a 12-sided polygon. This gave him a closer estimate of the area of the circle. This all seemed to be going quite well, so he doubled the number of sides again, and then again, and then again. Using the 96-sided polygon, Archimedes came up with his estimation that pi was somewhere between 223 over 71 and 22 over 7, a little over 3.14. Archimedes was right. Modern calculations show that pi does indeed lie between those two numbers. Again, go to the website for a diagram of how this works. This clever method of getting closer and closer to the answer by making more and more accurate estimates is called the method of exhaustion, or simply the Archimedes method. The great man used this method to estimate many other values, such as the square root of 3 and the volume of a sphere. Archimedes is best known for his discovery of how to measure the volume of something which had an odd shape, so that measuring it would be impossible. It is said that one day he was in his bath, thinking about how he could measure the volume of a coin, he noticed that when he sat in the bath, the level of the water went up. Archimedes realised that this was true for everything. When an object was placed in water, the increase in volume of the water with the object in it must be the volume of the object. Extremely excited, the great mathematician leapt out of his bath and ran down the street, naked, shrieking, Eureka! Eureka! Which means, I found it. Archimedes died around 220 BC. According to legend, he was working on a problem which had something to do with circles. He was drawing some mathematical diagrams in the sand when he was interrupted by some enemy soldiers who were invading Syracuse. The soldiers demanded he go and see their general, but he refused to go until he had finished working on his maths problem. This enraged one of the soldiers who killed poor old Archimedes where he stood. Apparently his last words were, Don't disturb my circles. Archimedes was one of the first victims of these new invaders. His home on Sicily was quite close to where they came from. Over the next hundred years, many more Greeks would suffer at their hands. These new invaders were known as the Romans, and we'll hear a little bit more about them in our next chapter. So, until next week, when we will hear an awful lot about those pesky Romans, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.